You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a three-part series of messages entitled Ruth and Boaz, A Love Story that J. Vernon McGee presented at Founders Week 1982. Then we'll close the week with a two-part message on Job, God's Example, from Founders Week 1980. J. Vernon McGee was a pastor, Bible teacher, theologian, and speaker on the Through the Bible radio program. Now here is J. Vernon McGee on Today in the Word Radio. This evening I want to begin a two-part message on the book of Job, and this sermon tonight will probably break every rule of homiletics, but I'm not interested in homiletics tonight at all. And for an introduction to the book of Job, let me say this, that this nation in which we live has produced the highest level of the good life for the majority to enjoy over the longest period of time than any other, possibly than any other nation. But that lifestyle is disappearing. Prophets of gloom, not only ministers, but men in every field today, all the leaders are saying in a very gloomy way that the end is coming to our way of life. Well, there's one thing for sure. Christians have certainly participated in the good life to its fullest. And during the 60s, we were bathed in the lotion of love in all Christian circles. During the 70s, we were drowned in the swamp of this saccharine sweetness. We were steeped in the soothing syrup of a make-believe religion. The 80s will perhaps see the sugar coating removed that covers the pill of the raw reality of life. I think we've had too much of sloppy agape. And we may be indebted to the Atola Khomeini for his rude and shocking awakening. He's the first politician we've ever met, our nation has ever met, that wouldn't compromise with us. And uh, he wouldn't. And somehow or another, we don't know what to do. And we feel like we're in grave danger today, and the church is. Someone has described this evangelical culture in which we live as plastic saints in cellophane bags living in the hothouse of the average artificial church. I think that's harsh, but that's what's been said of us. This generation is still drugged by the angel dust of liberalism. And I believe there's another alternative. I believe that many of us, we've heard so much about our priorities, I think we're going to have to sort them out again. And this came to my attention when we were going through the Bible this last time in the five-year program. The book of Job was the most popular book we had in the Old Testament. I could not believe it. I thought it would be the least popular. 
And I went back to see what might be there. And I do believe that it presents a, another alternative to this doctrine of Disneyland, this tinker toy theology, this Hollywood holiness, this li liberal lollipops, and this mirage of miracles that we've been fed for the past few years. And the poet is probably right. Life is real. Life is earnest. And it's still a good question to ask, what is the chief end of man? And that answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, we are going to come to the book of Job, and I want to read tonight a, a few verses in this first chapter. And here you have two scenes, tremendous scenes. You have a scene on earth. You have a scene in heaven. And the very interesting thing is, one is a scene of tranquility and the other is a scene of turmoil. One is a scene of serenity and the other is a scene of Satan. And the strange thing about it is that the scene on earth is a, the scene of tranquility. The scene in heaven is the one, it's the scene of turmoil. And certainly, as Shakespeare has Hamlet say, the times are out of joint. That's mixed up. Did the Bible get them mixed up? Here you have a scene of tranquility. And it's here on the earth. Let's look at it. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so. When the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now that scene ends, the scene on earth. And the scene shifts, and we go to heaven. And we are told things here we'd never know except by revelation. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now those are the two scenes that are before us. This first one, a scene of tranquility, serenity. The birds are singing, the flowers are blooming, there's not a cloud in the sky, and man's at peace. The total climate is salubrious, and browning in pepper passes must have been writing about this when he said, God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. The only thing is, all's not right with the world. And we'll find that out even here. Now, I want us to look at that, these two scenes tonight. In verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz, and I do not know where that land is. I have the foggiest notion where it is. And I've looked up all of the Bible dictionaries and the concordances, and uh, they didn't help me very much. But it's somewhere there in that Syrian desert, I'm sure. And that, this man's name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and perfect here actually means full maturation. In the New Testament, that is certainly borne out. And it really means he's a man who's out and out for God, which means, as we're going to see, that he offered sacrifices. And those sacrifices that he offered pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Job is, to my judgment, timeless. It belongs to no dispensation. It uh, is a book that reveals that God was approached by a sacrifice. And when we begin with man at the beginning, we know when Abel brought that little lamb, he knew more about the Lord Jesus than a great many folk know today about him and what he did for us on the cross. He brought that little lamb that pointed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man made all proper sacrifices. Paul said that before the law he was perfect, but he was not because he very candidly says that he coveted, but he brought the sacrifice. 
and the sacrifice that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I take it that this man had brought a sacrifice that pointed to the Lord Jesus. We'll see that in just a minute. Now there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. The Bible says that children are a heritage of the Lord. This man was wonderfully blessed. And then he had physical prosperity. His substance was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke oxen, and 500 she-asses. That always worried me about those little animals. And I found out that the milk of those animals was a delicacy in that day. That's what you served to your guests when they came to visit you. And I'm glad I didn't visit Job because I would not have cared for the delicacy, but that's what it was in that day. And we're told this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And I take it that he was the greatest of all the men of the East. He was the John D. Rockefeller, the Henry Ford, and three Arab sheiks all rolled into one. Uh, He had it made. This man, Job, had it made. And will you notice that he had everything that uh, men today are after. I was watching this morning from the room that I'm staying in all of the fine transportation you have in Chicago that brings people to work. And I could see them moving into town from under the ground, on the ground, above the ground. And they were just pouring out of these different modes of transportation, going into these great buildings and filling them up. And as I looked at so many of those young executives, I have a notion that if I had to stop one of them and said, really, what is your goal in life? What are you after? He said, I'd like to make a million, and I want a family. Yet the average man today, not even a Christian, will say to you, I, I want to make it. I want, I want to make my mint of money. I want to be a success, and I want a family. Now, Job had it made, friends. This man had it made. He had what the average man in America today would call a success. He was a great success. And beside that, this was, could be said about him. His sons went and feasted in their houses. Everyone his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. You have here the ease and comfort of an affluent society. His uh, children belonged to the jet set. Uh, One week they would uh, be at Newport, next week down at Acapulco, and then the next week they'd be over in the Hawaiian Islands, and then they would be at the south of France. Uh, The jet set. That was his children. And not one of them was going to the mission field. Not one of them. They weren't interested in anything like that. And uh, 
just easy going, take it easy, relaxed, undisciplined. But Job was a concerned parent, and there have been a lot of concerned parents recently. It was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings. Now, he offered burnt offerings. He's the priest in his family. That must put him back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, he earned offered burnt offerings, and that was the first sacrifices offered. The Mosaic system is not even mentioned in the book, so apparently it was before that. But he offered burnt offerings, and those burnt offerings pointed to Christ. Now somebody says, can you be sure of that? I can be sure of that. The Lord Jesus said of Abraham, And if all I had was of Abraham offering that ram that day, I would say he didn't know much about the Lord Jesus. But the Lord Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And that's the day he got his son back and offered a ram. He said God will provide himself a lamb. 1,900 years later, John the Baptist pointed his finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This man is offering burnt offerings, and he's doing it for his family, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. That's the one little ripple that's on the lake of life for this man. Worry about his children. A man several years ago in Atlanta, Georgia, said to me, he's a man of means, he said, Dr. McGee, the day I sent my boy to college with a car is the day that I wish I'd taken him to the cemetery. I wish I'd buried him that day. Job was a concerned parent. What about my children? And that's all. This man had it made, friends. Now the scene shifts and we go to heaven. And uh, we see something here that we'd not know unless God had revealed it to us. And uh, now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, I'm not going to tell you who these sons of God are, because I do not know who they are. And the reason I'm willing to say that is because I don't think anybody else knows who the sons of God are here. Uh, I know, I've read... uh, books on it. I read a book on it some time ago because I wanted to know. And it took that man 132 pages to let me know he didn't know. (laughs) All I got to do is just get up here and say I don't know. That's it. I do know this, that today the sons of God are those that have 
accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior from sin, and they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and have been made sons of God through faith in Christ and on no other basis than just simple faith in Christ. But I don't know how these fellows got to become sons of God. I do know this, that God has created intelligences that he hasn't even told us about. I'm sure of that. You and I live in a vast universe that right now, and an astronomer at Caltech the other day, he said, uh, uh, this is an infinite universe that we're in. There was no beginning, no end. And he said, we may have to bring God in after all. Well, if they're going to have one that didn't have a beginning and end, they're sure going to have to have him in. They've got the infinite there already. And so here are sons of God. There's some of the creations of God that we know very little about. You remember when John was caught up to heaven? Uh, he saw that great worship scene. He saw the church there, the 24 elders. Then he saw the angels about that. And then he saw another great company about that. And he said 10,000 times 10,000. That means you can't count them. But then he looked and he said, Oh, I didn't see that crowd out there. A host that no man can number. And IBM doesn't have a machine that can count those that are out there. May I say to you, you and I don't know very much about this universe, to tell the truth. Man knows very little about it and knows very little about these creatures that here are the sons of God. And I know what they say, but they are part of the creation of God out yonder. And it's a great company. And apparently they do know something about what's going on on this earth where you and I are playing a part today. And they came to present themselves before the Lord. But the strangest thing of all, Satan came also among them. Now here is where the problem comes in. Uh, Satan has access to heaven. Uh, he uh, comes into the presence of God. And the thing that amazes me is that he has to come into the presence of God to turn in a report. All of the, his creatures have to turn in a report to him. You see, you and I today are living in a universe that's God's universe. This is his earth. We walk on the sun out. That belongs to him too. It's all his and we're creatures, and we will have to report into him. Every creature will have to give an account to God. And by the way, my sins are back of me. I'll never have to report on them. 1,900 years ago, that was settled at the cross, and the systems are all gold between here and heaven. But he's going to ask me about my life. And he's going to ask you about your life. You're going to report as a Christian to see whether you're going to receive a reward or not. All his creatures report to him. This idea today that we do as we please 
you can do as you please, but please remember you're going to report to him someday. Every creature has to report to him. And even Satan had to report to God. And that to me is an amazing, startling thing to find out that this creature reports to God. But he's a creature, and he had to turn in his report. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And will you notice what he said? And he said it with a great deal of accuracy. He said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's called the God of this world. And Peter warns us, he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. You and I are in enemy territory today. This is the bailiwick of Satan. He was able to offer the Lord Jesus Christ the kingdoms of this world, and if he didn't have them to offer, our Lord would have called his hand immediately. He did have them to offer. And there are other indications in the Word of God of his tremendous stranglehold on this world in which we live. He had to give a report to God, and he said that he had been going up and down in the earth and walking up and down in it. Now the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And uh, why did he pick on Job here? Well, I think the reason is obvious. But in the answer of Satan, Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? How did Satan know that there was a hedge about Job? He knew it from the simple reason that he'd been around that hedge trying to get in. He'd been trying to get through to that man, and he was not permitted to get through to him. And I want to say this to you, that this, this man, Job, has really been protected of the Lord up to this point here. Satan has tried to get to him, and may I make this statement here? I believe that there is a hedge about every child of God, and that God is not going to let Satan get through to you unless it will accomplish some purpose in your life and something for his glory. I do not think he can get through to you unless God permits it. And I, over a period of many years, have watched the way some wonderful people, and you'd think, my, nothing could happen to them, and then the tragedy would come to them. And I've often wondered, why didn't it happen to somebody else? Why did it happen to them? And then over the long haul, I could see that there was a purpose in it. God permitted it for a purpose. 
There is a hedge about God's own, and Satan's not going to get through it unless God gives permission. And uh, then Satan said this awful thing, But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And I think all the sons of God shuddered when he said that. That's blasphemy. That's the worst thing in the world. Do you know what he is saying? He is saying to the Lord, this man Job is a paid lover. You have paid him to love you. You take away from him everything that he's got. Let me get to you, to him. And if I get to him, he'll curse you to your face. I'll be very frank with you. I hope he doesn't ask for Vernon McGee. I'll be honest with you. I don't want him to ask for Vernon McGee. I don't want to be a paid lover. We sang tonight. I listened to that. Oh, how I love Jesus. Uh, This sermon doesn't follow homiletics tonight. You're supposed to have an application. I have no application. You're supposed to answer questions. I'm not going to answer questions. I'm going to ask questions. How much do you love Jesus tonight? Really, it's easy to get up here and sing. Oh, how I love Jesus. But friends, there's trouble out yonder in the world tonight. And do you know that there are Christians in many places that are paying a tremendous price to love Jesus tonight. And it, it, makes me, it makes me tremble when I think of the price that they are paying. Now, will you notice what the Lord said? Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand, So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and he returned to the earth. We know he did because of what happened to Job. And then it happened. Everything that Job had was taken away. I'm not going to read that next scene on earth because that scene of tranquility becomes a scene of tragedy, an awful tragedy. Job loses everything that he has, and God has permitted it. And he did it for a purpose. Now, there are many purposes in the book of Job. Wednesday morning, I want to deal with what I believe is the main purpose of the book of Job. I don't think suffering is the main issue here at all. And uh, I believe that repentance is the great message of the book of Job. And we're going to see that when God wanted to write a book on repentance, he picked the best man that ever lived and showed that he needed to repent. When I would write a book on repentance, I would pick Saul of Tarsus in the scripture, or maybe even Manasseh in the Old Testament, or Jerry McCauley, or some others that I have met recently that... uh, came up out of the gutter, and they repented. They came to the Lord. But my friend, 
When God wanted to write a book on repentance, he chose the best man that ever lived and showed that that man needed to repent. And that's the reason I run ahead to say that, that God nothing does nor suffers to be done but what we would ourselves could we but see through all events of things as well as he. And so Job loses everything. He loses all of his possessions. He loses his loved ones, his children. Everything that a man prizes. What would you do in a case like that? Well, let's see what Job did, and then I'm going to be through. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job now loses everything. I think I would have complained. I'm almost sure I would have complained. I would have said, Lord, why did you let this happen to me? But Job didn't do that. Job says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. I came into this world naked, I'm going to leave it that way. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is said that when the founder of the Vanderbilt fortune was on his deathbed, the lawyer and doctor were with him, and all of the relatives were in the outer room. And when he died, the doctor and lawyer came out, made the announcement, started to walk out. One of the more brazen relatives rushed up to the lawyer and said, How much did he leave? And the lawyer turned around and spoke hurriedly as he walked out. He said, He left it all. He didn't take anything with him. (laughs) Naked came I into the world. And that's the way I'm going out. Job said, I accumulated it here. God bless me. But when I leave this world, I'm going to leave it all. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When I was with the Moody Conference up in Portland not too long ago, a young preacher came to me over at Moline. No, over at, uh, at Portland. When you get my age, you forget where you've been but I still know where I'm going. (laughs) This young preacher came to me and said, Dr. McGee, I'd like to talk to you. And he started in like this. He said, Dr. McGee, I want you to know I'm totally dedicated to the Lord. I love Jesus. I'll do anything for him. And... uh, I stopped him there and I said, young man, I said, you sound like another young man many years ago that I knew. He said, who was he? I said, as myself. I said, I said the same thing. 
He said, can't you say it now? I said, no, sir, I don't say it now. He said, you mean to tell me that you don't say that now? I said, no, sir, I don't say it now. And I said this to him. I said, in the embassy, not in Tehran, but in Russia, there's a family of nine, I'm told, live in the basement. They're Christians. They tried to get out of Russia. Uh, I don't know how many years ago. Twelve years ago, I guess it was. And uh, they wouldn't let them out. And if they would make a break from the embassy to the airport and be caught, of course, they'd be executed or be set to the salt mines of Siberia. It'd be tragic what happened to them. So they've stayed there all these years. I said to the young man, I said, if you were a member of that family down there, what would you do? He thought a minute, and he was a pretty smart boy. He said, "Uh, what would you do, Dr. McGee? (laughs) Well, I said, look, I said, uh, I I suffer from claustrophobia. I wouldn't like it down there in that basement in a little cubby hole. I said, I might walk out of there and say, Mr. Brashneff, (laughs) I've been thinking this over. I could be wrong. He said, you don't mean to tell me you'd do that. I said, look, I have an old nature that I've learned not to trust. And uh, I wouldn't want to be put in that position. And the young man said, well, my, what would you do in a case like that? I said, let me tell you another little story. I said, I'm told that when Dwight L. Moody was holding a meeting in a certain place that a man came up to him and said to him, Mr. Moody, do you have grace enough to die? And Mr. Moody turned to him and says, no, I don't. And this man acted very surprised. He said, you mean to tell me that Dwight L. Moody doesn't have grace enough to die? He says, no, I don't. But he says, when the time comes for me to die, I think God will give me the grace. And when that time came, God gave him the grace. He made a grand exit. May I say to you here tonight, I've learned not to trust this flesh anymore. I don't make brave promises to the Lord. I say to you tonight, what will you do? If you had been in Job's place, this is terrible to have to say, but I say it. Are you a paid lover of God and of the Lord Jesus? We are living in a new day. It's going to be a new ball game from now on. And I think that Christians are going to be tested. I think that's part of Watchman, What of the Night. There's a danger out there. And it might be well for us to shift our priorities today. We are talking so much about priorities. 
What would you do if the real test came? Could you say, Lord Jesus, you died for me. I'm willing to die for you. I won't say that tonight. I'll tell you what I'll say. Lord Jesus, you died for me. And if you'll give me the grace, I'll die for you. I can't do it myself. I've learned that I can't trust Vernon McGee, but I can trust him. Oh, tonight, friends, our Christianity is artificial, isn't it? Uh, we, it's so easy to sing glibly. Oh, how I love Jesus. What would you do tonight if you were in the embassy in Moscow, Russia, and you could come out if you deny Jesus? but you will be killed if you are true to him. I say, Lord Jesus, I need your grace in these days in which I'm living. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of two messages J. Vernon McGee presented on Job, God's Example, at Founders Week 1980. J. Vernon McGee was a pastor, Bible teacher, theologian, and speaker on the Through the Bible radio program. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.